Welcome to the Vintage Podcast, where sleigh bells are ringing, and we're ringing the changes even before we reach the new year. just one of the changes to the podcast which is going to have some new features in the months ahead. We're going to be out and about meeting writers, readers and culture vultures to bring you the very best in bookish chatter and plenty more besides. I also have a new ally in the studio, someone who may be familiar to those of you who have heard his interviews with authors here, his vlogs on YouTube or indeed his musings on Twitter as Vintage Books. It's our community manager Will Rycroft. Hello. Hello Will. Um, I believe you're sort of partially responsible for that new theme tune. Yes, I suppose I am. Uh, I asked a friend of mine, Gerard Fletcher, to create us a new theme tune. And I love it because it reminds me weirdly of my childhood because it makes me think of Bergerac. Makes me think of the Sweeney with a touch of Harry Lyme. There you go. We're we're dating ourselves. Yeah, it's horribly, horribly. (laughs) Let's move on because this is all about future forward. Although we are going to have a little look back at the year gone by, aren't we? It's been a kind of terrific year for books. So much has been going on right from the the very beginning of the year. I mean, we started with this extraordinary business of the long um, awaited sequel or rather the sequel that nobody ever thought would come, which in fact turned out to be the prequel. I'm talking about Go Set a a Watchman um, by Harper Lee, which turned out to be the sort of story before To Kill a Mockingbird. That was an enormous sensation, wasn't it? It was an amazing thing. I think but also because it got everybody talking about Harper Lee, but also to then go back and to read To Kill a Mockingbird again, mm. which I think a lot of people had read possibly when they were at school, but hadn't thought about it since. And when you go back to it and you realise it's just a stone cold classic, that book, it's just so lovely to read through again and realise what makes her such an amazing writer. And as you say, then you then got this new book that nobody thought would ever exist uh, and get people talking again you know about an amazing writer who'd been so enigmatic for her whole life what i've liked about this year is that it's been full of sort of surprises it hasn't just been about a sort of big book that you've known about for a long time mm. comes out you know it's been about things sort of almost taking you by surprise i mean we're talking about a writer who there who who you know has been in the sort of who's been reclusive and not not sort of available for interview for for, for many many years uh and another one doesn't doesn't sort of exist altogether i'm talking about elena ferrante yes. who knows who that person is nobody does although there's been an awful lot of of speculation her neapolitan quartet kind of finally sort of came to a close uh, in the sort of summertime um, autumn of this year it's an amazing story isn't it it's extraordinary and again another one of these things where where readers are very much talking to each other about these books and passing them from hand to hand and that feeling that you get where you know that there's this thing sort of bubbling around and in fact it doesn't matter who the author is because the thing that everyone's really talking about are the books themselves and how, how amazing they are but it's an amazing thing to have an author where people are actually not even sure what gender they might be, you know, because there's been speculation that it might be a male writer rather than a female writer. Yes, but nobody thinks that when I they've think, read the books. I think, I think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so, I mean, you know, just just for people who haven't read them, what they are is the, the tale of two girls from... Um, childhood to really to, towards the end of their lives in Naples from in the sort of post-war 
era. Um, and they are tremendous um, documents of kind of female life. But they're also about artistic life. One of the writers, the narrator, becomes a writer in the books. Mm. They're just absolutely fascinating. Um, I chaired a panel, actually, that was, I think, sold out uh, moments, you know. It felt like being sort of in craft work or something, you know. <laughs> it was just moments afterwards. All the tickets had been sold to this panel. And the, the, the bookshop where I, where I chaired this was just absolutely packed and heaving with enthusiasts and they brought all their books. This is for a writer who wasn't even there. Yeah. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? I think it just sort of shows <coughs> the, the power of the book itself and also, I think, the power of the readers, you know, who are all talking to each other about these books uh, wherever that might be whether that's on sort of social media or sort of comment boards on, on websites but there is that real fervor of discussing them and I think the love of them as well people you know we talk about that thing when you hand a book to somebody that means something very special to you and that I've seen that book handed around an awful lot I've seen it handed around in the offices here um, and the fact that there's not just one but but four of them to enjoy I think that's all part of the appeal well tell me a bit um, while we're talking about the power of readers yes. a little bit about what you do okay you're the community's manager I am um, and so a lot of your work is basically talking to readers, it talking is. to, to yeah. people who are enjoying books, putting them together with books. Yeah, I think there's that, the, the, the great thing about social media, it can be, I think especially with something like Twitter, is that, that, that you can have a conversation with whoever it might be in real time through the day. And I have a great job in that I'm able to talk to people about what is exciting them about reading. And I'm obviously there to, to talk about vintage books, but I can talk about any books. And I think that's really important um, to, to really find what people are in, engaging with, what's exciting them. And the great thing is that I often get to give books away or to help people who are looking for a book. And there's that classic thing where somebody says, you know, I'm absolutely stuck. I don't know what to read next. And so I'll ask them, well, what was the last book that you read and loved? And they'll tell me, and I'm pretty good at matching them up with something that I think they'll love next. And then the great thing is that a few weeks later, I get a message back going, oh, my God, I love that book. And, of course, hopefully you might have introduced somebody to a new author whose backlist they can then sort of go and devour. It's just great. And on YouTube, I've, I've been doing these vlogs. And that's, again, another really great way of communicating with people. I've had some lovely comments underneath there where people are getting excited about books they'd never heard of before, authors they'd never heard of before, uh, and my sort of, you know, my weekly enthusiasm, because I like to be enthusiastic, uh, because of what I'm doing with that vlog is to pick that one book each week that has really excited me. And it's really nice to sort of sometimes put that book in somebody's hand virtually, if not literally. Well, we'd love to, as we go forward with our podcast, we would love to hear from readers, wouldn't we? Absolutely. I think we should welcome some into the studio studio don't that, you i think that's a, a brilliant idea we should i mean it, it would be bit, a little bit like the sort of wizard of oz in a way they'd see us <laughs> sitting at our rather kind of broken down table yeah we should prepare you for the fact that it's yeah it's all <laughs> we might have ordinary. to glam it up a little okay. bit but <laughs> <laughs> um just going on to talk a little bit more about some of some of the books of the year there was a really interesting uh booker prize this mm. year of course it was won by marlon james for his book a brief history of seven killings um he's the first ever Jamaican winner. I actually interviewed him a short while ago and I said that to him and he said, I love that, the first ever. It sounds like there are going to be more. <laughs> and it is kind of amazing when you, you look back over the history of, of, yeah. of the booker to, to, to think that, isn't it? But it, it's a really astonishing book. I think it, it absolutely you know, won that prize on merit. And I remember hearing, again, from readers before the announcement, that was the book that so many people were talking about. They mm. really, really loved it. I think something to do with that style 
and it's a big book you know it's, it doesn't look it actually when you see it on the shelf but it's got many many pages it's a good meaty book that people have really been getting into and enjoying what so, about what is it with these big books this year? I don't know. There's been Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life, also one of the most discussed. Another another book a book, yeah. one of the most discussed. Um, Vintage's City on Fire by yeah. Garth Risk Halberg, an enormous book. What's going on? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, when we talk about these books, they're big. They're really big. I mean, City on Fire is almost 900 pages. Uh, Little Life, I think, is probably about the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that. I think people have always read big books, but I think at the moment people are really enjoying getting into something that a, a com- requires a bit of commitment because we're doing that now with our TV. You know, we're into we're the box set generation now, so we like to download a whole series or get gifted a whole series and binge watch. You know, we'll watch. You sit down, you watch one episode, and you go, "Oh, go on, should we watch another? Should we watch another?" I did that with The Sopranos. I watched the whole of The Sopranos, mm. all five seasons of it, in the space of a month which you don't need to do the math. That meant I was watching many more than one episode a day. But I couldn't stop. And I think that's because if it's good, you want it and you want as much of it as you can get. And I think with these books, people are willing to commit to a big, long-form narrative which might have multiple strands to it. And that's what they're enjoying is the fact that there's something really big and meaty in their hands that they can then, of course talk to somebody else about. It's interesting. I asked Garth Riskalberg exactly this question when mm. I interviewed him when he was over here uh, for City on Fire, which came out about a month ago, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and makes an excellent Christmas present, we should say. <laughs> wasn't it? And it looks big under the tree as well. It looks enormous yeah. under the tree. I mean, it's it, it really is a kind of total sort of ride of a book. I mean, you have to kind of immerse yourself in it. I do think that's part of, part of the thing. These big books are brilliant gifts, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think Actually, City on Fire is a great example of a book that's perfect to read over Christmas. I actually read it last Christmas, and it's sort of set around New Year initially, and so you've got the snow falling in Central Park. It's very, very atmospheric, that book, and so you really get a good feel. Yeah, it really is. And if you're into the kind of music of that period, the late Mm. 70s, it's just, it really is a kind of fascinating um, read. But I I asked him this business about about TV, because he said that when he'd started... uh, He'd started writing it at the beginning of writing it. He was doing kind of similar things. He was going over to friends' houses to watch The Wire and to watch The Sopranos um, and getting into it. But in a way, what he was trying to do, he said, was sort of reclaim that big storytelling territory for novels, not let the TV writers, who were often spoke of, spoken of as a kind of the new novelists, yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah. box sets are the new novels. But actually novels are the <laughs> new novels. Are the novels, novels yeah. are the new novels. And you can do this in writing because you can do more in many ways in writing than you can do Mm. on a screen can't you Mm, absolutely and also i think as well we forget that children are reading big books now as well of course thanks to harry potter i mean you know if you look at the order of the phoenix and the deathly hallows those books are gigantic absolutely huge my eight-year-old is reading uh one of them i think it's the order of the phoenix at the moment He, he looks tiny in comparison to this book because it's so big but he doesn't he's not awed by the size of it he's loving it and in fact he keeps saying can I can I go upstairs and read another chapter? <laughs> you mm. know he wants to he wants to get back to mm. that book as, as fast as he can. Um, so I don't think people should be scared of big books. I know 
there's something very satisfying about a brief book and I, I've said that many times myself but there's also something so so satisfying about really hunkering down with something gigantic well I think this gives us a bit of a problem though because I'm a bit worried about the books in the middle because you know I love a short book too I love a short book it's something you can slip into your pocket and take onto the train mm. um, I also love a short story and it's been a brilliant year for short stories I mean I'm thinking you have um, Helen Simpson's Cockfosters mm. uh, which is Frankly, the opening story is about a woman who loses her new glasses on the train and has to pursue them. And as somebody really addicted to my reading glasses, <laughs> I found this, I was just, I, that is what I would do. I would be pursuing my gl lost glasses up the Piccadilly line. Uh, but they've just been wonderful short stories. I mean, many of them um, sort of discovered as it were there's a wonderful book called a manual for cleaning women by um lucia berlin mm. um and anyway big books short books short stories what about those books in the middle 250 pages 300 pages well i in many ways i think that's sort of the perfect length for a book well maybe 200 is but i don't know what's perfect <laughs> but no i mean i think i think it's been a really interesting year for fiction i think there's been some amazing amazing books the booker prize this year I think was just interesting in terms of its diversity they were all so different those books in and very very exciting in different yes. ways so will I think that we actually share a book of the year don't we I think we do and it is a book that is about 250 or 300 pages it's, it's that yeah. sort of length yeah um it is Anne Enright's The Green Road and it's it is just my standout book my book of the year my possibly my book of the last five years um <laughs> Why do we feel like this? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm going to hold my hand up here and say that it is the first Anne Enright book that I have read. It is and not mine. So there we are. We come know, from different places. Well, yeah, and I didn't it's... know what to expect, I suppose. But I was just... I think you get blown away right at the beginning because it has this brilliant structure so that each chapter is almost like a short story at the beginning where you meet the different members of the family and you find out, basically where they have been, where they've got to, because this family has sort of gone its separate ways as the children have grown up. And the, the focus of the novel is to bring all of these disparate people back together to the to the family home because the matriarch is looking to, to sell it. And I just, I found that beginning fascinating. The characters are so, so brilliantly drawn. The book is so funny, in which I didn't expect. And then also, of course, so touching. But I just, it just delivers on every level for me. And very, very dark. I mean, there are yeah. some real darknesses in there, as there always are in Anne Enright's work. But um, I agree. I mean, it's the simplest story. It's an archetypal story. Mm. The family goes away. The family comes back. Um, you know, who has stayed? Who has who has gone? Yeah. What does it mean? How do they relate to one another? How do you? call yourself a family if you've if you've scattered you are but what is it that connects you yeah what connects you if you if you have kind of deep problems and grievances and difficulties with negotiating each other um the dynamics in the family are just brilliantly drawn but saying all this doesn't really describe the sort of magic of it and i think it was just that it was a constant surprise you're right you begin with that structure you think you're reading one kind of book mm. you think you're reading a book of small town irish life and then, boom, chapter two, you're in New York. Yeah. And not New York now, you're in New York at a very, very distinct particular period of time and you're immersed in it and it could not be more different yeah. um, than where you've just come from and you think, where am I? I have no idea. <laughs> it's just a brilliant book. And it has something rather Christmassy in it. It does. It has this amazing, amazing section which describes a, a, a Christmas shopping trip, which we've all done. 
But until you have read this section, you have not experienced a, a Christmas shopping trip quite like it. The amazing thing is that actually when Annette Wright was in the building, I managed to get her to read that section for us, which we can share now because it is, I promise you, just, well, just listen and you will understand what I'm talking about. The next morning, she went early into Ennis. It was 10am on Christmas Eve and the supermarket was like the apocalypse. People grabbing without looking and things falling in the aisles. But there was no good time to do this. You just had to get through it. Constance pushed her trolley to the vegetable section. Celery, carrots, parsnips for Desi, who liked them, sausage and sage for the stuffing, an experimental bag of chestnuts, vacuum-packed. Constance bought a case of Prosecco on special offer to wrap and leave on various doorsteps and threw in eight frozen pizzas in case the kids rolled up with friends. Frozen berries, different ice cream. She got wine, sherry, whiskey, fresh nuts, salted nuts, crisps, bags and bags of apples, two mangoes, a melon, dark cherries for the fruit salad, root ginger, fresh mint, a wooden crate of satsumas, the fruit cold and promising sweet, each one with its own sprig of green dark leaves. She got wrapping paper, red paper, napkins, tape, and more out of habit now that the children were grown, packs and packs of batteries, AAA, AA, a few C's. She took five squat candles in cream-coloured beeswax to fill the cracked hearth in the good room at Ardeven, where no fire was lit these ten years past, and two long rolls of simple red baubles to fill the gaps on our mother's tree. She went back for more sausages because she'd forgotten about breakfast. Tomatoes, bacon, eggs. She went back to the dairy section for more cheese. Back to the fruit aisle for seedless grapes. Back to the biscuit aisle for water biscuits. She searched high and low for string to keep the cloth on the pudding. Stopped at the delicatessen counter for pesto, chicken liver pate, tubs of olives. She got some ready-cooked drumsticks just to keep people going. At every corner, she met a neighbour, an old friend. They rolled their eyes and threw Christmas greetings and no one thought her rude for not stopping to converse. She smiled at a baby in the queue for the till. I know, she said. Yes, I know. The baby considered her fully. The baby gave her a look that was complete. Yes, she said again, and got the curl of a sweet, thoughtful smile. All this kept Constance occupied until the time came to unload the contents of her trolley onto the conveyor. The baby held itself proudly erect. The young mother underneath it looked like a prop. She looked like some kind of clapped-out baby stand. You're doing great, Constance told her. You're doing a great job. The bill came to €410, a new record. She thought she should keep the receipt for posterity. Desi would be almost proud. Constance pushed the trolley onto the walkway and the wheels locked cleverly onto the metal beneath them and she was happy, happy, happy as she sank towards the car park. She thanked God from the burning, rising depth of herself for this unexpected life. A man who loved her, two sons taller than their father and a daughter who kissed her still when there was no one there to see. She couldn't believe this was the way things had turned out. Her feet were swollen already. She could feel them throb, hot in the wrong shoes. Constance bumped the trolley off the walkway, set her trotters thumping across the concrete of the car park. It was half past eleven on Christmas Eve. In the pocket of her coat, her phone started to ring. And by the telepathy of the timing, Constance knew it was her mother. What is it, darling? She said, remembering as she did so that she'd forgotten the Brussels sprouts. He's still asleep, said Rosaline. For a moment, Constance thought she was talking about her father, a man who was not asleep, but dead. Well, don't wake him, she said. Damn, 
Of course she meant Dan. He was jet-lagged. Should I? Or maybe do, yeah, get him straightened out. There was a pause from Rosaline. You think? Have you everything, said Constance. I don't know, said her mother. Don't worry. It's a lot of work, said Rosaline, with real despair in her voice. You would think she had just spent an hour in the insanity of the supermarket and not Constance. But I suppose it's worth it to have you all here. I suppose. I'll be sorry to see it go. She was talking about the house again. Any time she felt needy now or lost or uncertain, she talked about the house. Right, said Constance. Listen, Mammy. Mammy, said Rosaline. Listen. Oh, don't bother. I'll let you go. And she was gone. It was Rosaline, of course, who wanted Brussels sprouts. No one else ate them. Constance stood for a moment blank behind the crammed boot of the Lexus. You can't have Christmas without Brussels sprouts. Sometimes even Rosaline left them on the side of her plate, something to do with cruciferous vegetables or nightshades, because even vegetables were a poison to her when the wind was from the northeast. Oh, what the hell, said Constance. She slammed the boot shut and turned her sore feet back to the walkway and the horrors of the vegetable section, then over to the spices to get nutmeg, which was the way Rosaline liked her Brussels with unsalted butter. And it was a good thing she went back up, because she had no cranberry sauce. Unbelievably, no brandy for the brandy butter, no honey to glaze the ham. It was as though she had thrown the entire shop into the trolley and bought nothing. She had no big foil for the turkey. Constance grabbed some potato salad, coleslaw, smoked salmon, mayonnaise, more tomatoes, litre bottles of fizzy drinks for the kids, kitchen roll, cling film, extra toilet paper, extra bin bags. She didn't even look at the bill after another 15 minutes in the queue behind some woman who had forgotten flowers as she announced and abandoned her groceries to get them, after which Constance did exactly the same thing, fetching two bouquets of strong pink lilies because they had no white left. She was on the road home before she remembered potatoes, thought about pulling over to the side of the road and digging some out of a field, imagined herself with her hands in the earth, scrabbling around for a few withered spuds, lifting her head to howl. Back in Okavana, she unpacked and sorted the stuff that would go over to Ardeven for the Christmas dinner. Then she repacked that. Then she went to Rory's room where the child was sleeping off a hangover. Constance took off her shoes and climbed onto the bed behind him. Oh, fuck, he said. Your own fault, said his mother, as she spooned into him with the duvet between them and the wall at her back. Ah, ma, he said, and flapped a big hand over his shoulder to find a bit of her, which happened to be the top of her head. But Rory was always easy to hold, easy to carry and easy to kiss. And there, in the smell of last night's beer and of his rude good health, fretful, lumpy Constance McGrath fell asleep. Isn't that amazing? It just makes me feel so much better <laughs> about all those times. <laughs> I've stood thinking, I don't know what kind of crisps to get, so I've thrown them all in there. I mean, it's just a kind of brilliant exposition of the sort of desperate excess of Christmas and this kind of yearning to sort of show your love, but the kind of harassment of it all and the desperation to kind of create this sort of home it's just it's just an incredible thing isn't it i think it? my favorite thing is the fact that she does she does this christmas shop and she's on her way home and she realizes that she's forgotten potatoes which you think would be the one thing that would be pretty obvious you've got to have roast potatoes and that image of her thinking she should just go into a field and dig some up with her hands you just that for me sums up the total madness 
of Christmas. And indeed, I mean, uh, that description of all that booze reminded me, of course, that we, we were at a party last night, weren't we, Alex? It was Vintage's 25th birthday. We were. And it was amazing. Well, it was an extraordinary... I mean, I know you're very used to interviewing very famous writers. <laughs> I, I'm still slightly wide-eyed about all this stuff. And I was in that room last night, and I was looking around, and I've got... There's A.S. Byatt over there. There's Julian Barnes over there. There's Nigella right next to me. And just this amazing range of writers who are all part of the, the vintage family, I guess we would call it. And it made me feel, well, very proud, but sort of amazed, actually, that that, that range and that, that, again, diversity we're talking about. Um, and... Of course, this year we've had many of them come into our studio and record stuff on our podcast. Well, and sometimes we've gone out to them. Indeed. But I thought what we could do is we could share some of our favourite bits from the past year. So coming up, we have Deborah Mogger calling Steven Spielberg a very naughty word, Robert Douglas Fairhurst on the enduring appeal of Alice in Wonderland, Ian McEwan talking about writing his debut story collection, Salman Rushdie and I dissolving into hysterics, and Richard Godwin trying to get me drunk. Enjoy. Let's do it. My milkman at the time, remember when I was spanning a long time, he... Um, when people had their milk delivered. When they, people had their milk delivered, exactly. He's a great film buff, or was a great film buff, and so we used to talk about movies. And when I was going off to for this meeting with Spielberg in Hollywood, this thrilling moment, I was running down the garden path with my suitcase to get into the cab to go and fly off. And Ron, my milkman, was coming up the pass with his clanking bottles. And he said, where are you off to, Deb? And I said, well, funny you should ask, Ron. I'm actually going to, to L.A. to speak to Steven Spielberg, since you asked. <laughs> and this film's going to happen, and you and I can be extras, because I'm always extras in my film. And we could be, maybe we could be market traders in Amsterdam in 1636. Got on the plane, didn't think anything of it. On the plane, I bumped into Barry Norman, who was going to the Oscars, and he said, where are you off to, Deb? And I said, well, funnily enough, Barry, to meet Steven Spielberg, I've just written this book, Tulip Eve, and I gave him a, the only copy I had of the book, which I was going to give to Spielberg to suck up to him. Barry Norman read it on the flight, and as we got off, he whispered, I've, put on, I've written on one of the pages, Steven Spielberg is a wanker. <laughs> so I thought, great. <laughs> so I got terrible giggles, had the meeting with Spielberg, came back to find, emblazoned on our local newspaper, a photograph of my milkman with his milk float saying... Milkman to star in Spielberg movie. And I thought, well, that's a bit funny because it's not even a film yet. And the Daily Express phoned up and said, you know, um, we, we, we've just been speaking to your milkman about his starring role in the Spielberg movie <laughs> of Tulip Fever. Um, would you like to add anything? He suggested we spoke to you as well. Well, the word reflection is interesting because, of course, in the second Alice book, she um, goes through a, a looking glass uh, into looking glass land. But then Alice herself over 150 years, has become something like a looking glass. She's become one of those funfair mirrors that we use to reflect distorted versions of our own fears and hopes uh, and anxieties back at ourselves. So over 150 years, we've used Alice to think about the suffragette movement and the First World War and the rise of cinema and mushrooming drug use in the 1960s. And now, of course, it's the internet. But it means that you can never pin Alice down. She's like a thought bubble. Just when you think you've managed to, to capture her, she floats away somewhere else. I'd made this sort of private vow to myself that I would use this year to write fiction. Mm. And I wanted to give Malcolm Bradbury something to read. So I made a brutal decision to just sit down at this table and not leave the room until I had written a whole short story. And so I worked through the night, a very romantic feeling <laughs> as the city went dark and silent. And I just kept writing on into the September dawn. 
And at the end of it, I had a story of about four or 5,000 words. And I was actually, I was a big reader as a child, it's true. So I read everything from Batman comics to, you know, P.G. Woodhouse. <laughs> but actually, it's very strange that the two English writers most popular in India, mm. I think still to the present day, mm. were P.G. Woodhouse and Agatha Christie. I really... Everybody read all of them. Yeah. You know, and so certainly my the first, as it were, real books that I was reading were, on the one hand, children's books like, I mean, Swallows and Amazons was very popular in India. Mm -hmm. So, and I remember reading those, that sequence of novels, being amazed. That felt like fairy tale to me because of these young people my age, given unbelievable personal freedom. Yeah. You know, to mess around in boats in the Lake District with no adult supervision, yeah. doing things that were really pretty dangerous. And I thought, how can children be allowed to do that? You know, it felt <laughs> surrealist. You know? So on the one hand, there was Swallows of Amazons. On the other hand, there was Jeeves and, and you know, Blanding's Castle and, mm. and, and Poirot and, and Miss Marple living in the most dangerous village in the world. <laughs> <laughs> where people were regularly not regularly <laughs> murdered. This tiny village, tiny sleepy village, <laughs> in which people were dropping like flies, <laughs> and nobody seemed to notice. Nobody <laughs> seemed to notice, let alone run for their lives, <laughs> which which would have been the correct response to, to living in Saint Mary Mead. <laughs> we whack on the top, shake it up, a good hard shake for about five to ten seconds. The longer you shake, the more the ice will break up into little particles and melt. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the, the more diluted your cocktail is going to be. Mm -hmm. So ideally, that's where you want a lot of ice in because then it will cool it much quicker and you only need to give it a short, sharp shake for it to be cool. You don't want it to be too wet. Right. Okay. And then you strain it into the glass. And you have a delicious gin sour. Incredibly simple. Very good. I have the sample. Well, I have the slightly onerous task, of course, of, of testing this. Um, well, here we go. That's all <laughs> I can do is to taste. Bottoms up. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I've come down, obviously, for my accent, I'm not from around here. I've come down from the Northern Powerhouse. Um, we're, we're getting there. And um, in, this, in the middle of this book, there's a long poem. I'm not going to read the long poem, because that's the death knell of any reading, isn't it? I just want to read you my long poem. It's the equivalent of kind of a band saying, we want to play our new album for you. It's like, no, do the classics. But I'm not going to read that long poem. But I'd been kind of going around saying that I thought the long poem was what Howl might be like if Howl, Howl had been set in Barnsley. Because um, Howl's my kind of favourite long poem. And, um, and then a reviewer wrote this kind of very nice review of the book, but he said, actually, it's not, it's not anything like Howl. It's just a series of homosexual encounters, not all of them successful. <laughs> Which is how, you know, it's going to be on my tombstone, that will be. Um, but a lot of the book is to kind of people who I was kind of with or people that left, but I thought I, I needed to write a poem for the people who had kind of almost been there. Really, um, and so this poem set in Manchester, based around a lot of the people um, that I kind of met when I was there. It's called a gift, a gift for the ones I never touched, for the ones who wanted to watch films, who wanted to talk, 
who wanted silence and said I talked too much. For the one I saw weeks after, laughing. For the one who served me coffee and didn't recognise my hands. For the optimistic ones who write their names on toilet walls, the ones I never called. For the ones I called who didn't answer, who left our love suspended from the ceiling hooks of that meat market city. For the ones who left and settled down, the ones who wanted knowledge, were curious, who gained something from each encounter, used each other, who took what they needed for everyone they hurt, who felt burned out, the ones who didn't realise everyone was burning, the ones who never slept, who died nightly, the ones who'd said they'd kill for it, for all of them a gift. We were young, we only had our bodies. Finally, a day will come when, woken by the xylophone of sun through blinds, you'll realise that the beach was not the place where horses tore the sand to ribbon, that the scent of him has lifted from the last of the sheets, that he isn't coming back, that it hasn't rained, but the birds are pretending that it has so they can sing. Thank you very much, guys. So we finished off there with Andrew McMillan, who is just one of the stars of 2015 for me. Um, and again, I'm going to do my hand-holding-up moment. I don't read an awful lot of poetry because I often feel like I don't quite get it because I've never been very well-schooled in it, I suppose. But Andrew McMillan's collection, I totally get. And I get it even more when I hear him reading it out loud because he's an amazing reader of his own poetry isn't he Thank yes you. absolutely right and I mean at, at quite amazing almost like a rock star I mean he got such an amazing response from people there um, what is it do you think about that collection which is so so amazing well I've just been part of the Guardian First Book Award judging panel mm. and uh, Andrew McMillan won and uh, I mean what happens in the judging room stays in the judging room but <laughs> I can say without uh, fear of contradiction I think that we were amazed and delighted with our shortlist. Mm. Um, it was such a wide range of books, types of book, and they were so impressive. Um, and that Andrew's book stood out from that shortlist and just wowed us all, um, just took us by surprise and became the first book of poetry ever to win the award was was is, is a sort of testament to how powerful it is. Um, it's just the directness and yet the tenderness. It's the fact that he talks about all sorts of intimate relationships, not only with a kind of candour and sort of bravery and immediacy, but also with humour and with charm. It's just an amazing collection. I agree with you. I don't really have the vocabulary to talk about poetry <laughs> as a poet would or yeah. as a critic of poetry would. Um, but I felt totally confident that we had discovered something uh, special here. And uh, and indeed, that book goes on to um, to contest the Costa Poetry Award, doesn't it? it Along does, yeah. with along with another uh, one of your titles, I think, Neil, Neil Rollinson's yes. book. No, fantastic poetry selection for the cost of this, for, for, for the, well, for next year, for 2016. Um, and I, in fact, I think the whole Costa list across, you know, across the different genres 
it is fantastic. I think it's a very exciting prize. I, I have no idea who will win, but again, and then writes the Green Road is on there. So of course, because I'm championing that book, I'm hoping that it yes, might it's scoop. a book that I. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Once read, that book really stays with you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens in. Uh, it's, it's January, isn't it? It's January. It, yes. I mean, the prize season doesn't rest for very long, does <laughs> it? <laughs> have a brief rest over Christmas. Everybody have a quick rest over Christmas. Try to catch up with all your culture, <laughs> and then come back and join us for for more books, more prizes, more chatter. <laughs> well, this concludes our first podcast together. How do you think it's gone? I I I've loved it. Listeners, if you'd like to leave us a rating, <laughs> <laughs> let's hope that they loved it too. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll feel very silly. No, but it's been great. I, lo- I love chatting to you always about books, and I could do it at least once a month. So let's do that. Let's do that, and let's get a lot more people along to help us out with that and go out and keep grabbing writers, although, you know, try not to yeah, know, take them too unawares. Um, thank you all for listening to the Vintage Podcast. We really would love to know what you think, so please do leave a comment on SoundCloud or give us a rating on iTunes. Have a great Christmas. Remember to take a book with you wherever you go, and we will see you next year.